Welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Madam Cronin, and today we're discussing King, Warrior, Magician, Lover, the Four Archetypes of the Mature Masculine. This is the title of a book by Robert Moore and Douglas Gillette, and it provides a good model for masculine energy. And it answers the question, what does a man become in the fullest version of himself? And I think it's so needed nowadays to have good models for masculine energy because society nowadays does tend to favor feminine energy. And I think it's important to ask this question, what does it mean to be a good man in the year 2022? And what are the various paths that a man can take in developing his fullness? We're going to look at these various paths in today's episode. And here's a great illustration of these four models, the king, the warrior, the magician, and the lover. And one thing that's important to understand is that there are shadow archetypes for each of these four fundamental archetypes. So if you are unbalanced as a king, you may be a tyrant on the one hand or a weakling on the other. Whereas if you're fully balanced, you will be the king in his fullness. Similarly, if you are a warrior archetype, you might lean too far towards cruelty to others, which would make you a sadist, or you might lean too far towards cruelty to yourself, which would make you a masochist. For the magician archetype, he can become a detached manipulator on the one hand, or he can become the denying innocent one on the other hand, if he denies his magical abilities. And the fourth archetype is the lover in his fullness, And if the lover is imbalanced, he can become the addicted lover, that's one of the shadow archetypes, or the impotent lover on the other side. So we're going to look at all four of these archetypes, and I'm going to provide some examples from ancient history, from the Bible, from Lord of the Rings, and some current examples as well, so we can really understand what each of these archetypes embodies and why it's so important to find balance between them. So let's start with looking at the king in his fullness, the first archetype. This really is the fundamental archetype. In Hindu religion, they call this the Atman. It's the inner being. It's the source of conscious awareness. It is the self. And so the attributes are, it's the center of the universe. If you think about a king, he really is the center of his universe, of all the order that he provides. So a king is someone who provides order over chaos. That's perhaps his most important role. He is also someone who is generative or life-giving. Kings often have big families. They often will be at weddings blessing the bride and the groom or blessing the knights before they go off to battle. So the king is generative. He gives blessing. He is also a healing king. He provides order. And he integrates all the other archetypes. So a good king is not just a good king. He's also a good warrior, a good magician, and a good lover. And so let's look at some of these examples of the king in his fullness. One example that always comes to mind is Aragorn, who is the rightful king of Gondor. And he is someone who very much integrates all the other types. He's a lover with Arwen. He is a magician. He's probably the person besides Gandalf that does the most in the magical realm. He gets the ghost army on their side. He's able to wield a magical sword. And he also is very much a warrior. He is one of the people who leads the men into war against Sauron and his armies. 
So Aragorn really is a great embodiment of the king in his fullness. Similarly, Jesus is often depicted as a good king. You can see this painting of him wearing the crown. And he also is someone who is loving. He is someone who, when he needs to, is a warrior, although that is definitely de-emphasized in the Christian faith, whereas in Islam, for instance, the warrior aspect is much more prevalent with Muhammad. And he's also someone who is a magician. He creates miracles. He heals the sick. He walks on water. He multiplies the loaves of bread. Another example of the king in his fullness is Marcus Aurelius. Marcus Aurelius is the embodiment of Stoicism. So no matter how much chaos there was in Rome at the time when he was ruling, no matter how many diseases were throughout the empire, how many barbarians were at the gates, he would always have calm, collected decisions where he would do what was best for the empire, regardless of what was happening in his own mind or all the chaos around him. And then we get into some of the shadow poles of the king archetype. So one pole that you'll probably be very familiar with is the pole of the tyrant. And a great example is Kronos, who is the king of the titans. And when all the Olympian gods are born, Zeus, Poseidon, Hades, all their siblings, he eats them alive because he does not want them to usurp his power and to become more powerful than himself. And eventually it is Zeus who frees them, and that's when the Olympian gods take over. But we see this theme again and again where the tyrant fears the power of a new king, and so he will do whatever he can to destroy this new power before it can usurp his throne. Here's a biblical example of the tyrant king. This is King Herod, who, when he heard that Jesus was going to be born, that a new king would be born, he went to kill all the firstborn sons in the area. He wasn't able to kill Jesus, but you can see the cruelty and the insecurity of him wanting to kill anyone who might usurp his throne. And then Caligula is a great Greco-Roman example. He was perhaps the cruelest of all the Roman emperors. And very similarly, he would kill, torture, threaten, blackmail anyone who threatened his power over Rome. And on the other side of the pole, we have the weakling. This is a king who is not powerful enough or not aggressive enough to order that which he has domain over. So one example is Peter, who denied Jesus three times before the cock crowed. This is an example of his weakness. So whereas he was one of the most accomplished disciples as far as leading in the example of Jesus up until then and after then, he had a moment of weakness where he denied Jesus because he was afraid he might get crucified alongside Jesus if he acknowledged knowing him. Another example is Theoden in Lord of the Rings. While he is under the spell of Grima Wormtum, he is someone who will not assist in Aragorn or Gandalf in the war against Sauron. He thinks that because his kingdom is doing all right, that he doesn't have to worry about any of these battles of Middle-earth. And so he is an example of a weakling king who doesn't stand up for justice when it's needed most. And then when we look at more modern examples of weaklings, I would say Jimmy Carter is pretty well accepted as some, a president who was good. His heart was in the right place. He certainly is a good person, but he was a weak president. He focused too much on process. He didn't have as much vision or reality distortion feel that someone like 
Steve Jobs has, for instance, um, or Teddy Roosevelt, where he kind of just didn't have enough fortitude or virility to really lead America in the direction that it needed to go. And I would say Joe Biden is also in this poll of the king archetype. I believe Joe Biden is a good person and he really does want what's best for America. But because he has some weaknesses and he's not willing to really do what is best for America now in the year 2022, he's kind of just doing whatever the Democrats advise him to do. And this has led to draconian mandate policies and kind of just going with whatever way the media wind tends to be blowing. And so I would say these are examples of weaklings. The second archetype is the warrior in his fullness. And the warrior is very much needed nowadays. I would say there is not enough warrior energy in the world in the year 2022. It has been de-emphasized in the modern world. And the two poles of the warrior are the sadist and the masochist. And so let's look at some examples of the warrior in his fullness. So one example is Leonidas, of the king of Sparta, as shown in the movie 300, and obviously through all the mythology of Sparta and the 300, who stood up against tyranny, against the Persian Empire, for the freedom of their people, despite all the odds. And another example would be Braveheart, right? Mel Gibson goes up against the British for the freedom of Scotland, against all of the injustices that the British had perpetrated against the Scots. And another example would be Alexander the Great. He went to war leading the charge to provide order over his domain. And whatever you think about what he did, he's perhaps a little bit more controversial. Maybe he was doing it for his own glory. You can't negate the fact that he bravely went into battle on the front lines right alongside his soldiers. And that's what led his soldiers to love him so much, to respect him so much, and to follow him literally to the ends of the earth or to the ends of the known world. Musashi is perhaps the greatest samurai in all of history. And he also went through this path of the warrior where he actually started off on the sadist pole, where perhaps he was a little bit too into war. Anyone he came across, he would challenge them to a sword fight because he wanted to prove that he was the best samurai in the land. And as he grew up and became more mature, he then went a little bit to the masochist side where he refused to fight anyone and in some cases would actually let an injustice take place because he was not willing to intervene and cause death. But then towards the end of the book, he does become the warrior in his fullness. And he is never going to be someone who draws first blood. He's not someone that is looking for a fight, but he will stand up to tyranny and he will stand up for the underdog when the time comes and when it's necessary. So the attributes of the warrior in his fullness is he's aggressive in a good way. He's virtuous. He will never back down from his core values. And he provides order in the sense that he protects the underdog. He protects the core values that he believes in. And so we can look at some other examples. For instance, in Lord of the Rings, Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli are the three embodiments of the warrior ethos. They always do what is right in regards to fighting for the good against the ill. You also have David and Goliath in the Bible. This is a great example of how despite massive odds, 
by using some skill and some cleverness and having bravery, you can take on Goliath. And I often think of this quote, which is an ancient Chinese proverb that says, it is better to be a warrior in a garden than a gardener in a war. And in the year 2022, I think this is really important for people to take to heart, which is that it's not a bad thing to be prepared. It's not a bad thing to be armed and to have a plan in case things go south, because it's better to be safe than sorry. It's better to be a warrior who is in a time of peace, who is sitting peacefully in a garden, than to be a gardener who is totally unprepared for war and unable to protect his own. That's why I'm a very strong believer in the Second Amendment. I think it's important to be able to protect your own home, your own family, your own household. And it's important to learn self-defense, to learn basic firearms training, to stand up for your values. And especially in the world we're living in today, where global tyranny seems to be spreading all throughout the world, we need more peaceful warrior energy to counter this tyrannical energy that is trying to dominate the world. On the other poles of the warrior archetype, we have, of course, the sadist on the one side and the masochist on the other. So the sadist would be, in the Bible, the devil, the demons, everyone who is always torturing all the miserable souls in hell. That is the embodiment of the sadistic side of the warrior ethos. In Lord of the Rings, we have the ring wraiths, also the Urukai, all of the orcs. These are basically evil warriors that are only fighting because of fear, because of desire, because of greed, not because of any good core values. And then, of course, in history, we have things like the Holocaust, right? Vilifying an entire group of people and thinking they are the ones that need to be destroyed. Whereas really, it perhaps you are the one who is evil and not the victims that you're scapegoating. There's been many other massacres where we have that sadistic type of energy take over. In Lord of the Rings, we also have Denethor, who embodies the masochist, where he lights himself on fire with his son, Faramir, who's still alive, because he can't handle the thought of his city falling. And so he is basically so fearful that he tries to kill himself and actually does end up killing himself and almost ends up killing his son. So he's a great embodiment of the masochist side of the warrior shadow poles. And then a great example is ascetics or asceticism. This is much more common in Hindu culture where you will have some monks who sit all day long out in the hot sun on a rock and they only eat one banana a day. And through that suffering, they try to get closer to God, but really they're unbalanced. They're going too far in the side of punishing themselves and they're trying to be a brave warrior for God, but they are imbalanced. Rather than trying to starve themselves to prove some point, or Christians sometimes will wear chains and slap themselves and self-flagellate, rather than doing that, perhaps you should find a middle ground and try to provide order in a more healthy way, in a more balanced way. The third archetype is the magician. This is one of my favorite archetypes. It's probably the one that I most closely, that most closely resonates with me. And I would say now in modern times, this is the age of the magician. This is the age of technology, the age of innovation, and also the age of disinformation and misinformation. So 
in a large sense, we are very much living in a world of the detached manipulator pole of the magician archetype, where so much of what is said by the mainstream media is meant to manipulate, right? They're not telling the full story. They're trying to manage society, try to manage the populace. I think politicians do this a lot too. Uh, to a lesser extent, it also happens in the corporate world with technology of how do things really work? Are, are the products really free? Is the data being used in some way that we are going to regret the way it's being used in the future? So I would say the magician in his fullness is the dominant archetype of our age, of the year 2022. But he's not all bad. I think the best way to visualize the magician archetype is through Gandalf, or if you're a Harry Potter fan, through Dumbledore, or if you're a Star Wars fan, through Yoda. This is the guide who guides the hero through his trials and tribulations and helps all the other archetypes along their quest. So he may guide the warrior to battle. He may guide the lover to find the love of his life. He may guide the king to be a just king and provide order over the realm. So he is a very important character and he works magic in order to help these members along their quest. And he can be either a technical magician. So someone who I would say Satoshi Nakamoto, who created Bitcoin, is a magician, a technical magician. Or you can be more of an intuitive magician. I would say someone like Alan Watts is an intuitive magician. He is a master of describing the indescribable so that people can find their path in life more easily. And let's look at some examples of this magician archetype. We already looked at Gandalf, Dumbledore, Yoda. I would say Noah in Noah's Ark is another great example. Everyone thought he was crazy for building this ark out in the desert, but he ended up being someone who had the foresight to prepare for the flood, and he was able to save all of the species of Earth, as the story goes, by his preparation and by his resonance with the magician archetype. I would also say great scientists like Galileo and Albert Einstein are magicians. They are able to tap into the fundamental nature of reality to a greater extent than anyone else before them. And so when we talk about we stand on the shoulders of giants, many of these giants are magicians who mastered their craft and taught us some of the secrets of the universe. We spoke of Satoshi already. I think he is the most relevant magician in today's times. Certainly very mysterious as we don't know who he is or if he's even still alive. And certainly most impactful where without his invention, it would be pretty hard to break away from the fiat system, which is essentially a system of debt slavery that we're in currently. The two shadow poles of the magician is the detached manipulator on the one hand, and then the denying innocent one on the other hand. So the detached manipulator would be someone like Grima Wormtongue in Lord of the Rings. He is the evil steward always whispering in the king's ear, all of this fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And I think a great embodiment of this, there's a documentary called Merchants of Doubt, where it talks about all the lobbyists for the tobacco industry and how they would basically just sow doubt. Do we really know that smoking is bad for you? Does it really cause cancer? What about this study where nine out of 10 doctors recommend camel? There is so much of this manipulating energy in today's world that I think this is really one of the 
this and the tyrannical shadow poles are the two major poles we need to fight against in today's time. Sauron is another great example. He tries to manipulate Gandalf into joining the forces of Sauron rather than fighting on behalf of the good people of Middle-earth. And in the Bible, we have the serpent who manipulates Eve and Adam in order to take a bite of the apple. And then we also have in the Bible doubting Thomas. So he is the other side of the shadow pole of the magician, where he is the denying innocent one. So he's not someone who's bad and trying to manipulate, but he is simply someone who does not have faith. He needed to actually feel the wound of Jesus to be convinced that he had risen from the dead. Another denying innocent one would perhaps be Bilbo Baggins in Lord of the Rings, where he is very reluctant to give over the ring to Gandalf. And he even tries to go out the door before handing over the ring to him. And of course, he is attached to this ring and he is detached from the reality that this ring has to be destroyed in order for the world to progress. And I really like this one quote from Alan Watts, which really gets to the essence of this denying innocent one, which is, I would say that atheists are a great example of denying innocent magicians because by their confidence in knowing that God doesn't exist, not just saying, hey, maybe he exists, maybe he doesn't, but knowing that God doesn't exist is actually an indicator that they are very religious. And Alan Watts has a quote where he says, nobody believes in God like an atheist. There is no God and I am his prophet. So I think a lot of atheists are going through this stage where they're denying their own intuitive understanding of the magical or what is indescribable in rational terms. And hopefully they get past that stage of atheism where they can have a more open mind to all of the various forces in this world, whether they are explainable in rational terms or whether they're only explainable in intuitive terms. The final and fourth archetype is the lover. And this is someone who doesn't have to be a romantic lover. It can also be someone who loves their child, a father who loves his son, a mother who loves her daughter. It could be a king who loves his subjects or Jesus as the shepherd who loves his sheep. And it is this love that binds many of the archetypes together. So it is very important to be in this state of love. And I think this is a really important distinction which is that the lover in his truest form isn't just in love with, he is in a state of love. So think about someone like Gandhi, for instance. Gandhi was perpetually in a state of love. Just being around him, you felt his warmth and kindness emanate around. So even if you were a member of the British that was trying to quell the rebellions in India, it was very powerful to feel this force of love, and that ultimately is what gave India its independence. You also have the sacred heart of Jesus. Jesus is in many ways the embodiment of love as told in the Bible. And he is someone who tells his subjects, turn the other cheek. He's not someone who believes in the eye for an eye, which was the standard way of doing things before Christianity. He is someone who says, look, what happens on earth is not as important as what happens in heaven. Therefore, when someone slaps you, turn the other cheek and let him slap your other cheek. Do not retaliate. And this was a very powerful demonstration of love. And in Lord of the Rings, the lover is best embodied by 
Aragorn and Arwen. These were in some ways star-crossed lovers. Aragorn is a man, Arwen is an elf. And through their faith and their unconditional love for each other, despite all the odds, and Arwen had to give up her immortality, and Aragorn had to sacrifice so much in the, in the form of battles, trials, tribulations, even giving up the love of Eowyn, who was another potential lover for him. And so this whole story of Aragorn and Arwen is a great embodiment of what successful love looks like and all the sacrifices that need to take place. Martin Luther King is another great example of the lover in his fullness. He is someone who preached love, togetherness, judging people by the content of their character rather than the color of their skin. And whereas so many in the civil rights era were dividing and wanted to fight and wanted to have that warrior energy, he was someone that realized love was more powerful than hate. And he even says, I have chosen love because hate is too great a burden to bear. This is the lover in his fullness. There's also obviously the impotent lover on the other pole, someone who is not able to love fully. They have some hangups, whether internally or externally. And this is also something in Lord of the Rings with Aragorn, where he says to Eowyn, I cannot give you what you seek, because he knows his true love is Arwen. And so even though he knows he could fall in love with Eowyn, that it is not meant to be. And so rather than lead her on, he has to tell her that I cannot give you what you seek. So this is the impotent lover or the lover that cannot fully give himself over. Another great story of the lover is Orpheus and Eurydice. Orpheus was one of the most incredible musicians in all of ancient Greece. And so much so that whenever he played his lyre, animals and creatures and nymphs and all types of beings from all around would come to listen. And he was very much in love with Eurydice, but Eurydice got bitten by a snake, and so she went down to the underworld. And because Orpheus was so in love with her and almost an addicted lover, which is the shadow pole on the one hand of being too obsessive, too into love, he went down to the underworld and rescued her, but on one condition. The only way Hades would let her out was if he had the trust that she would be there behind him when he made it to the surface. And he was not allowed to look back at her the entire journey up through hell to the upper world. And just at the very top, he lost his faith and he looked back to see her. And that's when she fell into the underworld forever. And so this was a great story of how he is the lover in his fullness for most of the story, but at the very end, he has a moment of weakness and he doesn't have trust that she is there behind him. And that's when she falls away from him forever. There's also the story of Rapunzel, which is another type of obsessive love or possessive love where the sorceress who raised Rapunzel would not let her out of her tower. And so she had to weave her hair into this long rope so that eventually Prince Charming could come up. And this is a great recurring example of how when you're too smothering, when you're too possessive, when you don't let your offspring or those you love become full versions of themselves, it has bad side effects. And you're better off letting people become their fullest versions of themselves rather than trying to be too overprotective. I think Gollum or Schmeagol and the One Ring is a great example of this 
overly addicted love or overly obsessive love where he always talks about my precious and he's willing to do anything, whether it's biting off Frodo's fingers, whether it's deceiving others, lying, cheating, stealing, he will do whatever it takes to get this ring. And that is what ultimately leads to his downfall. He dies alongside the ring in the fires of Mount Doom. And I think in modern times and also throughout history, there is this common recurring theme of the state, the government, being either the devouring mother, which is communism, or the devouring father, which is fascism. So the devouring mother, that is kind of like the Rapunzel story where you so much want everyone to be orderly and healthy and get what they need that you literally try to control every aspect of their life. So a communist might say, look at all these poor people, look at all these people we need to help. Let's take all the means of production. Let's divide up everything in our community and divvy it out equally. And if anyone disagrees, we're going to kill them because we know what's best. Mother knows what's best. And we're doing this for your own good. So that is the embodiment of the devouring mother, whereas fascism is the devouring father. This would be 1930s Germany under Hitler, where it is that father energy, almost like the tyrant energy, where it's because this is what's good for you and dad knows what's good for you. We're going to have these very stringent top-down rules and you better like it and you better not forget your place within this hierarchy. So these are kind of the two poles, the two shadow poles of the lover. And unfortunately, we have often fallen too far to one side or the other of these shadow poles. I am a little bit worried that America is going in the direction of the devouring mother of trying to control every aspect of our lives for our own good. And you certainly are seeing that around the world. So this is something we need to be very cognizant of and we need to find more balance in that lover archetype. So now that we've reviewed all four of the mature masculine archetypes, I just want to say some final thoughts. I would say that the goal is not to only become one of these archetypes, it is to become the master of the four realms, the master of all four archetypes. So you want balance. You want balance between each of the four archetypes, and within each archetype you want balance between the two shadow poles. And I find it very telling that in Latin, the Romans had the word felix, which had three meanings. It meant healthy, happy, and lucky, or blessed. And I think this is so telling because in the Roman perspective, if you are healthy, then you're also happy and you're also lucky. If you're lucky, then you're also happy and also healthy. If you're happy, then you're also healthy and also lucky. So they really do all go together. And that is a great indicator that you have found balance. I would also say that it's important to find alliance among these archetypes. So you might yourself be more of a magician or perhaps you're more of a king and you want to make alliances with warriors, or perhaps you're a warrior and you want to find the right king that you can collaborate with. So all four of these archetypes are important to be intertwined for the success of everyone. And I would just finish by asking you some open-ended questions. Which archetype do you most fully align with? Which one resonates the most with you? Are you a magician, a warrior, a king, a lover? And which are the shadow poles that you most need to work on? Do you often find yourself being tyrannical and shouting orders at others? Are you overly obsessive as a lover? 
Are you someone who finds yourself lying and deceiving others as the dark magician? And also, who would you like to become in this world? What is your true nature? What is the fullest expression of yourself that's trying to come to fruition? And what can you do to help that process? Hope you enjoyed today's episode. And I'll see you next time. The past, the present, and the future. A computer.